We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. All right, we just, we're getting right to it, I guess. Let's do it. Let's do it. Who needs an All intro? Right, the right, music Joe? that I picked didn't play. Sorry about it that. Did, well, listen, I mean, maybe uh, the, the, legal, the legal people came down and said, don't ever use that Bradford show open again. It's okay, Ethan. It's all good because we're, we're shot out of a cannon here at the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios. My, got my man Joe Weil here. I, I, man, Joe, I, I, I keep, now that you told me how you spell your name, uh, don't do that to me. All right, Joe Weil. All right, Joe's here. I'm here. Sean McDonough, I mean Sean McDonough, Sean McAdam, who wrote the franchise, a curated history of the Red Sox. It's going to come down a little bit later. And I, I look forward to Sean coming down here because, for a lot of reasons, to talk about his book, but also because Tristan Cass has called, got called up. And Sean and I, and I have been around long enough to see a lot of these guys get called up. And there's a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different circumstances. There's a lot of different um, types of guys and guys being nervous and, and, and or being counted on on more and I'm so I'm really anxious to, to break that down with Sean and Sean's also going to tell us what Cora Alex Cora says with the media session which is going to go on in a few minutes but and up until then and we'll also by the way a big treat for you big treat so I ran into the clubhouse got my recorder out and I'm going to give you all eight minutes of the Tristan Cassis media session from earlier today in case you didn't know I, I've mentioned Tristan Cassis twice he's been called up Tristan Cassis has been called up to the Boston Red Sox. We've been waiting, 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 waiting. Bobby Dahlbeck obviously gets sent down. Tristan Cassis is also, uh, according to him, I haven't seen a lineup yet. Joe, have we seen a lineup out yet? No? No, not yet? I haven't seen it yet. No, okay. But, well, we'll have to take his word for it. He said he's playing first base, starting at first base and hitting six. All right, so we're going to break this down uh, before we get to the sound. And Cassis was pretty entertaining talking to the media in the clubhouse. Like I said, we'll get to you uh, after the trending. But with, with, when it comes to Tristan Cassis, I've got a chance to be around him. Not a lot. I mean, obviously, he came here when he was drafted, took BP, hit bombs with J.D. Martinez. That was 2018. And you'll hear him talk about that, how that seems like a lifetime ago. All right, that was 2018. He gets hurt pretty early on in his career. And then he, he comes back. He has all kinds of different stances. When you saw him in spring training, I'm like, how does this guy hit? Like, he's so spread out, such an enormous guy. And then they were playing him at third base early on. And I'm like, how is this guy going to play third base? Which, of course, he really wasn't. But he came up as a third baseman. He was drafted as a third baseman. But everyone knew he was going to land at first base. And then, obviously, he'd go through all these different levels, including Team USA. He t- I, I did a podcast with him. And by the way, way since this is the Bradfoe Show, I encourage everybody to go to the Bradfoe Show, subscribe, listen, review, all of that good stuff. We read a red hot, uh, and we're going to have a great week. But we had him on the Bradfoe Show a couple years ago, and he had long hair. And he said, you know, I grew up the long hair because my dad told me that that's what Red Sox players do. They have long hair. And I think he was referencing 2004, 2013, all that. But he's an interesting guy. And if you don't believe me, so I'm, I, do, I do the media session in the clubhouse, talk to Cassis. Now I get to come down to the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios here. 
And we're getting ready for the show. Uh, thanks to KJ and Dundero for having a great show leading up to this. So I'm, just as I'm leaving the field, I see Jerry Familia throwing uh, out in the bullpen. I mean, I'm sorry, out in the outfield. He's throwing. And then I see someone else. The only person out there in the entire outfield, the only person there was a guy who was just in shorts, no shirt, no shoes. That's it. And that was Tristan Cassis. I'm like, wait, why, who is that? Like, first of all, I haven't seen, I, I can honestly say this, I have never seen a Major League Baseball player go out to the outfield, take off his shirt, take off his shoes, and just sort of like, you're almost like sunbathing. The closest I can think of is Terry Francona used to do it on the road every once in a while. But Tristan Cassis, the first day in the Major Leagues, goes out to the outfield, and he's out there, and I think what he's doing, and we'll have to talk to him about it at another time, but, you know, remember the Adam Adovino thing, the earthing, remember? They, they got into the whole taking your shoes off, feeling the ground. I feel like that's what he was doing. And you could go to my Twitter account, at Bradfo, to see a picture of, you know, there's nothing like, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just like, this is something that I had not ever seen before. And this is a guy's first day in the major leagues. So I think that tells you a a couple of things. Let's let's get uh this let's take a deep dive into this. This tells you a that he's very secure in his own skin, figuratively and literally. All right, he's secure in his own skin. He's been doing this in Worcester. Just because he's at Fenway Park doesn't mean he's going to get out of his routine. He's going to do something uh, or not do something that he had been doing. Good for him. Good for Tristan Cassis. Also, it tells you that like he's a thinker. Right? This guy isn't just cookie cutter. This guy is a thinker. You can hear when we play the interview, you can hear him talk and you can get that vibe from him that he does have a personality, that he is, he is a pretty witty guy. All that. And, and obviously, everybody has been looking forward to Tristan Cassis coming up. Everybody. Everybody has been talking about it. When is he going to do it? We thought it was going to be in June. He has the ankle injury. That takes a couple months. And anyway... Boom, he lands here after having a really, really good last month. Good for him. But it is going to be really fascinating to get to know Tristan Cassis a little bit more beyond just what we saw in spring training and also see how he impacts this team. And more importantly, how much this, then looking back, how much this prepares him for next year. Like all of this is fascinating to me. And really, and I said this at the, at the outset, when you look at this guy getting called up, we have, this is probably, probably, and Joe, maybe you can help me with this. This is probably the, the most anticipated call-up since Devers. Am I wrong? I think that's a, that's a good one. I mean, we, we've been waiting for him for so long, this entire season. We thought he was going to be somebody that's going to fill this first base position that's been vacant in terms of production for a long time yeah well initially they thought they were going to do the doll back Cassis thing I was like oh by June this is what it's going to look like obviously that didn't happen for uh, various reasons but okay let's just go down that road let's say that this is the most anticipated call-up since Devers and that's 2017 that's 2017 so you go back to when guys were called up Bogarts in 2013 okay obviously that team was going they sort of felt like they, he could be a server purpose for a pennant drive. All right, that's one scenario. That's not, not saying, hey, Xander Bogarts, you have to carry us. I mean, that team was a, was a wagon already by the time he got to the major leagues. But he was a complimentary guy, 
and then they obviously had to move in a third, and, and it, it didn't work out exactly like they had planned. All right, so that's Bogarts. Mookie Betts, I believe, was June 29th in 2014. By then, they were, I believe, six games under 500. The wheels were already falling off. And nobody was saying you're calling up Mookie Betts to write the season. No. You felt like Mookie Betts is ready. Here it is. We'll go from there. All right. That, was, that fell under more of like along the lines of what we're seeing here, I think, with Cassis, which is we think this is the right time for this guy, not necessarily prioritizing that this is important to the record of this team. I don't think that's the case here. The, the Red Sox are seven and a half back. They're seven and a half back after winning all these games in a row. And you know why they haven't gained any ground? Because every team except for Minnesota in front of them are winning just as much. Every team is hot. So it is what it is. This is about 2023. So then you have, before Devers, you have Mankata. Remember Yoan Mankata? Who can forget Yoan Mankata? Oh, my goodness. I mean, and they called him up. That was the ultimate, we need your help, Yoan. We need you to play third base. We need you to be the starting third baseman on a playoff team. That was right around this time. That was the end of August, beginning of September. That was nothing like this. But believe me, when you talk about highly touted prospects, that was a big one. Ben Attendee also. Ben Attendee, another example of that. Okay? He could help. That guy is going to help a, a team that they thought was going to win. Then you get to Devers. Devers, same thing. Same thing. 2017, 2017, you have a guy who was called up who they think can actually help. Okay? So... This is completely different than that. What are they expecting from Tristan Cassis? Well, we're going to have to see how much he plays. As we said, we believe he's hitting six and starting at first base today. All right, great. But still, I think this is all about 2023. And this, the, the benefit here of bringing up Tristan Cassis, and we'll get more to this. We'll talk to Sean McAdam about it. We'll listen from Trist to Tristan Cassis. We'll hear what Alice Cora has to say. All of that. But really what this is, and I don't know what they're going to say. Maybe they say, hey, you know, that we really need a, a spark to make this run in 2022. This is about getting this guy acclimated to see if you can hit the ground running when it comes to 2023. That's what this is about. And good for them. That's what it should be about. Absolutely. You look at Connor Wong. Connor Wong two nights ago, boom. Home run. Everyone's excited. We'll see what he can do, if he can keep that going and actually be a viable guy, maybe teaming with Reese McGuire heading into next year. Brian Bayo yesterday, I don't know if you know this, but he pitched really well. I, right now, as we sit here, Brian Bayo, you would think, is a member of the starting rotation next year. That's, and so you get him experience, much like they got experience for Tanner Houck in 2020, leading into that year, all of that. So then, now you get Cassis. Cassis is a guy who is, you, I don't know how much he's going to play. You have Christian Arroyo. You have Franchi Cordero still here. You have other guys who can play first base. You can pick your spots with him, not be overmatched, not say, have a guy who is going to swing and miss all the live long day and then say, ah, sorry, we have to keep running you out there. No, this is all about getting acclimated. And by the way, a great guy to have around is Eric Hosmer. Eric Hosmer, who everyone raves about as being a clubhouse influence, but also, I don't know if you know this, he also went to American Heritage High, which, where Tristan Cassis went. 
I mean, this guy is a perfect mentor. I don't know if both guys are going to be on the 2023 team, Red Sox. I don't know that. But I, and I can make the case for it. But I do know that this month, this month of having those two together, that's a big deal. Absolutely a big deal. All right, we got a lot to get to here. 617-779-7937. Red Sox, all the way up into the Red Sox pregame. This is Tristan Cassis Day. We're going to play you the Tristan Cassis media availability after the break. But first, we're going to trend with Ethan. Your home of the Sox. Now, here's what's trending on WEEI. Trending now here at WEI and WEI.com is brought to you by your New England Ford dealer. Tune in to WEI this Red Sox season as they broadcast live from our Ford Clubhouse Fenway studio before Red Sox weekend home games. Brought to you by your New England Ford dealers and Ford Trucks, official truck of the Red Sox, and by the McDonald's app. Download the app, join McDonald's Rewards, and start earning points good for free food every time you order. Excludes delivery, download, and registration required. Now, for what's trending here, the Red Sox coming away with another win yesterday, 5-3 to three over the Rangers. Brian Bayo notched his first big league victory, pitching through six innings and striking out five. The Red Sox have the chance to sweep the Rangers this afternoon with first pitch set for 1.35 p.m. You can catch the pregame show with Rob Radford right here on the Shaw's and Star Market Red Sox Network. Celtics' recent acquisition, Danilo Gallinari, has reportedly tore his ACL after belief was he only tore his meniscus, and now his recovery timetable has been set for anywhere from 6 to 12 months. And finally, the New England Revolution are set for their match with New York City FC tonight. Kickoff is set for 8 p.m. The Revs are coming off a draw to Chicago Fire FC, while New York City FC is coming off a 2-1 loss to D.C. United. I'm Ethan Hurstadulu, and that's what's trending at WEEI and WEI.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. All right, welcome back to Bradford's show, live from the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios. I'm Rob Bradford, taking you all the way up to the pregame show where there'll be more Rob Bradford. But this is a Bradford show. Yes, you can subscribe, listen, all that good stuff almost every single day. We'll give you something on the Bradford show podcast. Today just happens to be live on the radio or wherever you're streaming on the Odyssey app, wherever it might be. And today is Tristan Cassis Day, so we're breaking it all down. I am anxious to get some thoughts, if anybody has any, about does this change the perception the last couple of days where you have – Connor Wong getting the home run, Brian Bayo, oh my goodness, like how good is he or how good can he be? And also now Tristan Cassis, the hope, the, the future, and all of that. Does that get you jacked up a little bit more or are you still waiting to see what they're going to do with Bogarts, with Devers? But, you know, these guys that I'm talking about probably are going to be part of the 2023 season. Well, the main guy of all these guys, Connor Wong and Brian Bayo is Tristan Cassis. Everyone was waiting to find out when he was going to be called up. Well, here he was. We walk in the clubhouse today. There is Tristan Cassis. Chris Cotillo, good job by him. Breaking the story last night that he's being called up from Worcester. And you're going to hear from Tristan Cassis talk all about 
how that played out, how he found out, what his thoughts were, how far he's come. There's a lot that Tristan Cass has talked about. And as you can hear, guy with a good personality, very loose, very secure in himself. I already made the reference about walking out here, seeing Tristan Cass lay down in the outfield, shirtless, shoeless, just like he's at the beach, earthing or whatever he's doing, but that's his thing. And to be secure enough to go to the major leagues and say, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, to me, that's a subtle good sign. Anyway, we sat down with Tristan Cassis in the clubhouse earlier today. Here's what he said. It's been everything I've imagined so far. I'm um, excited to take the field for the first time, uh, you know, playing in Fenway. So um, it's been exciting. Uh, get that call yesterday, talk to AC on the phone. It, was, it all felt pretty surreal. Who's the first person you called and, and let him My know pops. that you make it to the field? My pops, of course. Sorry, i got to wait for you to put that on me yeah. first day. Um, <laughs> No, my pops, yeah, I called him and I, you know, as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I uh, broke down in tears. I told him, I was like, uh, yeah, it's coming true. When did, when did they tell you? Was it before the Worcester game that you didn't play in or, or after? After, I teased Trace about it. I was like, hey, why aren't I in the lineup? I know I got 20, 20-something straight played, but uh, I want to be in there. And he's like, no, don't worry, you just needed a day. I was like, uh, all right. Uh, I trust you, Chase. So uh, he told me after the game, yeah. Did they have a good announcement? Like, you know, like some of these other guys, or did he have you going a little bit? Nah, he kept it real straightforward. He's like, how you feeling? I was like, uh, I'm a little bummed that I didn't play today, but we won 9-0, so uh, weird. But uh, he just told me, he's like, uh, yeah, I just wanted, wanted you to be rested for tomorrow when you play in Fenway. I was like, uh, got it. And then Alex called you soon after? Yeah, Alex uh, was my... Uh, one of my first calls after, and uh, he just told me to be myself and that he's excited to, to uh, see what I got to uh, to display. Your family coming up, Tristan, have they time to get here? Uh, not today. No, they, they're, they're going to come join me in Tampa um, next week. Thankfully, I'm making the trip, and it's not just one day. So, uh, yeah, they're going to come see me then. Did you go look back to when you were hitting here after you were drafted at Fenway? Because that seemed like a long time seems like a lifetime ago honestly I uh, I was here for the outside in 2020 and I didn't really get to see the inside of the clubhouse so the last time I got to see the clubhouse was 2018 uh, that day when I came here so yeah it feels like a really long time ago what's today been like since you got here uh, it hasn't hasn't been too eventful uh, I just got a tour of the place uh, ate some breakfast uh, got everything settled in my locker about to work out and get ready for the game but uh, nothing so far nothing too much Tristan how much do you hope that the Olympic experience and playing with some of those big league guys maybe will help you with this transition? Yeah, definitely meeting some big league guys uh, was fun. I, I didn't really have any uh, major league uh, teammate experience up to that point, so that was fun getting around some some pretty accoladed guys. And um, I, don't, I think it'll be a little different. I think uh, not playing in front of fans will be a little different than today, but um, definitely playing in that type of pressure situation uh, hopefully prepared me for, for what today is going to be like. Have you been in touch with Hosmer at all? Yeah, I talked to him a little while ago. He texted me uh, shortly after I got the call. So uh, he's really excited for me. I'm really excited to get to learn from him. And he met me in uh, AC's office when uh, Mr. Cora was giving me the rundown about um, the way we go about things here. And uh, he met me in there. He was really excited for me. You've been hitting really well, uh, Tristan, since he came back from the, from the injury. Uh, you know, it's kind of led to the success you've had that last yeah, I think uh, everything that I've always harped on, uh, just controlling the zone, uh, staying within myself, staying disciplined, uh, just controlling what I can control, and uh, 
you know, just swinging at the right pitches, trying to do damage on every swing. What, what do you think this ballpark represents to you in terms of the opportunity from a hitting standpoint? I think it's going to fit right into my game. I think uh, my poolside uh, my poolside home runs go plenty far enough to go over the bullpen, and I think uh, my opposite field hits are going to go off the monster pretty frequently. So I think it's going to play great into my swing, great into my game. I'm, ex I'm excited to get consistent at-bats and uh, see what kind of numbers I get to put up. What, what has Alex told you about what to expect in terms of playing time and how often you'll be in there? Uh, nothing, so far, nothing as much as playing time. Um, nothing as much as, as how long I'm going to be here past next uh, road trip. So I'm um, just taking it day by day. Do you know if you'll be playing today? Yep, batting, uh, batting six, playing first. So it's pretty cool. How much, how much more ready are you now than even coming out of spring training? Um, night and day, night and day. I mean, I've made so many adjustments uh, from spring training to now. Um, it's a constant work in progress, so uh, it's never going to be a finished product. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a different hitter than I was in spring training, uh, but uh, still the same at the same time. Did that, did that ankle injury hang around longer than you thought it was going to? Yeah, definitely. I think I have a, a pretty high t pain tolerance, so we all kind of underestimated it as a whole staff. Um, right after it happened, I stayed in the game, you know, for the next couple innings. So we kind of thought that it may not have, you know, been as worse as we thought, and uh, it ended up taking 10 weeks to get perfect. So I'm, I'm glad I took my time because uh, it feels good as new now. Do you think without that, you might have been here? No, I, I think uh, my timing was perfect. I think uh, it's exactly the amount of time that I uh, anticipated. When the rosters expanded last week, there, there was some speculation that you might get called up then. Uh, when you weren't, did that disappoint you? Did you think maybe that signaled that you weren't going to get up here before the end of the year? How, how did you treat that? No, not at all. I mean, I feel uh, every day is a learning experience, whether I'm here in AAA or here in the big leagues or in AAA. Um, I'm still going to get the same amount of bats, still the same amount of uh, opportunity to learn, and that's what I'm focused on, not really um, you know, where I'm at. I'm just trying to keep my head under my feet, and uh, thankfully I'm going to be uh, contributing to this team now. So. Where my focus is. Tristan, I heard your bats improved like right before the injury against left-handers, and then they continued that when you came back. What what kind of adjustments did you make, or, or approach-wise against left-handers? Yeah, I think it's all about comfort. Uh, and I have so many more at bats against right-handed pitchers. I think once I have that many bats uh, against lefties, uh, I'll have the same success. But I think just being a little more patient, um, you know, giving myself a second longer to see the ball. It's a different angle, so. Um, just making sure that I read rotation instead of committing too early is what I was focusing on and um, making sure that my angles are staying towards the middle of the field, not pulling off too quick, uh, off breaking balls and, and off-speed pitches. Having been here an hour, what's the coolest thing about being here so far? Probably the kitchen. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think any minor league facility has anything like that, and we didn't even get anything like that in spring training. So, um, I mean, I'm big on food as I should be. I mean, I, I everybody eats four or five times a day. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what kind of meals they uh, they put together up there. So you said you had breakfast. Yet. What did you have? Uh, I had them. I had them make me some avocado toast with some eggs and a little ground turkey. So that's what I had. Such an Hopefully question. it's got hits. Yeah. So. yeah. Such, such an important question. Yeah. Tristan, how much time now to get acclimated to just kind of going into the off season? So maybe 
Yeah, I think as, as baseball players, we're all pretty routine-oriented, so getting a feel for um, the facility, getting a feel for uh, the timing of everything, I think it's going to be important going into next year, so I'm glad I got to get up here for a pretty extended amount of time and, and uh, really harp on those things uh, you know, that are going to get ready, get me ready for the game. I think in the, in the last calendar year, you probably played for, I don't know, five or six, four or five different teams, you know, with the Portland and Arizona and Worcester and the Olympics and everything else. Like, is this, you know, how bad will travel? You go where you got to go when you play? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's just the same game everywhere. Uh, the only thing that changes is the amount of people that watch uh, and how big the stadium is. Uh, I think uh, even though baseball is such a team sport, um, it's very individually oriented. So I just do my part and, and uh, I feel like I make every team better than I'm on. You're getting pretty good at joining a new team and figuring stuff out. I mean, you've done a lot of that the last year or so. Yeah, hopefully uh, I don't have to do that for the rest of my career. but. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's been a whirlwind to get to this one right now. Oh, my goodness. What an interview. What an interview. What a media session we had with, uh, with young Tristan Cassis. So we had basically uh, a lot to get through. We had him, how far he's come. We've had, uh, most importantly, I think the best question, no, no question about it, was what's the thing that jumped out at you in the, in the last hour? Last being in a major league clubhouse for one exactly one hour, what is the thing that jumped out at you? Pause, pause, pause. The kitchen. There you go. The kitchen. Who doesn't like a good egg white omelet? A major league. Those egg white omelets. They taste a whole lot better. They taste a whole lot better when you're a major leaguer and a minor leaguer. Well, speaking of major leaguers, Sean, hit the red button. There you go. All right, Sean McAdam. I'm having some bad flashbacks right now. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, I spent a lot uh, of time in the studio. That's Lou Berloni over there, and that's Steve Buckley over I there. I know exactly where <laughs> I am. Uh, listen, Sean McAdam, uh, I am holding the book in my hand, the franchise, the curated history of the Red Sox. So we, we, got, we got a lot of time to get to that. There's a lot I want to pick through in terms of, the, the whole book. It's an excellent book, and I know it's doing very, very well. Everyone's going to want to check that out. Amazon rankings are the best, Sean, right? Uh, we'll, we'll invent a category that you can, <laughs> you can be the leader in. Well, listen, in my book... Most, uh, well, the, the, the category is baseball franchises that predate World War One and <laughs> histories thereof. I'm 14 there. Well, today's, I just looked it up. Today's category is baseball franchises that, that call up big first base, big, six foot four first baseman whose first order of business is to walk on the field and take his shirt off. Yeah, I, uh, I, I just asked Dennis Eckersley if, if Tristan Casas was a man after his own Oh, heart. yeah, right? And he said, I don't think even I would be bronzing on day one. <laughs> Have you, so this, this is, we're going to get a lot, a lot to a lot, a lot about a lot, and, and I, including you just came from Alex Cora. But I said this, Sean, I don't, I remember Francona used to do it, right, on the road? Yes. I don't think at home. I don't think at home. I, he used to go out and, and sunbathe, take his shirt off, and sit in the outfield. I don't think I ever saw a major leaguer do it, like ca how aggressively Cassis would do it. Yeah, and, and on day one, you know, he, <laughs> he has hit the ground running. Um, I, I'm told uh, Joe McDonald, who we both know uh, from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, said this is pretty much an everyday routine for him. 
at AAA, that he would go out in the afternoon, take his shirt off, enjoy the sun, and just be at one with uh, with Mother Nature. And I guess the fact that he's now in a big league environment, that's not going to change. I think it's encouraging, team. don't yeah, you? I, yeah, it, it, it shows that, I mean, it's unorthodox. And uh, as I said, uh, as I reported in my tweet, there was one Red Sox veteran who said, are you bleeping kidding me when he came out of the dugout and saw the scene? So um, it, it may it may take a few guys by surprise. I think that, you know, there is still kind of a stodginess to Major League Baseball where uh, some are going to look at that askance a little bit. But um, I, I think it, it sends the message that he is not intimidated by his surroundings, that he's going to continue to do what made him uh, successful and comfortable throughout his minor league journey. And, and I think if you're the Red Sox, that's a good sign. It, it, it says he's not, uh, you know, in awe of this new level and that he's going to be himself. So good for him. I think that, and it's also, we could get maybe morph this into the conversation about the book, uh, the franchise, the curated history of the Red Sox that Sean McAdam wrote um, about how things have changed, right? I mean, right. this has been... Uh, a conversation that's been growing over the last couple of years is how things have changed, how uh, rookies are being viewed in the clubhouses, how just a couple of years ago it was, hey, go sit in the corner, sit in the in the media dining by yourself and don't talk to us. Right. Rookies should be seen and not heard. I mean, this this would be uh, absolutely, and I'm like to your point, maybe it is unheard of in some people's minds anyway. But it, it also is is a microcosm of how things have changed. And, and Sean, like in my mind, I don't know how you feel. It should. I mean, if a guy's called up, you need him to be a major league player, right? Yeah, and he's going to get that opportunity. I, I was a little surprised, Rob, in, in our uh, daily uh, manager's pregame press conference that um, Alex Core said he's going to play a lot. Or really? Maybe, maybe even use the phrase mostly every day. So this is not, you know a platoon situation where he'll face only right-handed pitching or that he'll play a few times a week and that you'll still see Franchi Cordero and and uh, and Christian Arroyo sharing some time at first. Uh, they're going to get a good look at him, which I think is also the way to do this. You know, I, I mean, Christian Arroyo is not your first baseman of the future. It's unlikely that Franchi Cordero is your first baseman of the future, although he may have a role in this club going forward. But Tristan Casas is is the guy you're going to have playing that position a lot in the next few years. Uh, you know, maybe there's some job share with his uh, his mentor uh, in Eric Hosmer when Hosmer gets healthy. The fact that Hosmer's now on the IL certainly yeah. helped create this opportunity. And who knows what happens in spring training in the start of next year? But good, let him play. Let him get his feet wet. Let's see what he can do. It is funny because I think that maybe a day ago. And he said this a couple times. Cora said, yeah, Christian Arroyo is going to play a lot at first base. But things change, and I think you're right. If if they're going to take that route, then take that route. Then fine. As long as you're not getting blown away on fastballs all the live long day over and over and over again, then you can pick your spots a little bit more. But it, it, there's a lot to get to when it comes to this Cassis thing. But before we go to a break, number one, uh, any other news from Cora today? Um, well, obviously, uh, uh, Cutter Crawford goes to the IL with some shoulder soreness, but they're not too concerned. In fact, Cora was already talking about him uh, being eligible to come off the IL when they're back from the next road trip and 
in time to maybe face Kansas City. The schedule also do, does them some favors here in the next week and a half because they have of off three off days yeah. in the span of eight coming up. They're off Thursday in between Tampa Bay and Baltimore, and then they have off days around both uh, the, the two games of the mini-Yankee series here. So there's an opportunity to rest guys, maybe go with four starters instead of five. Um, trying to think of what else was uh, on the docket. He talked about what he wanted to see from Dahl back down at AAA to, uh, you know, to control the strike zone better, to hit, hit the pitches that he's been missing or fouling off. Uh, he's going to play a lot down there at first and get an opportunity to maybe end his season on an up note, even though he would clearly have preferred to stay in the big leagues. And I think that's really about it. Well, so one of the things I want to get to, and, and we'll talk about your book uh, after the break, but one of the things I want to get to is that we've seen guys called up for different reasons. I, and, I, and, I, and I was talking with Joe, and I said, you know, I think this is probably the most highly anticipated call-up since Devers. Would you say that? Yeah, certainly among position players. I mean, I think there was a lot of anticipation around Bayo's arrival as yeah. a pitcher uh, because, you know, they have had – it's well-documented how difficult it's been for them to develop a starting pitcher within their own organization – we can go back probably to Clay Buckholtz as the last guy to have any success for this franchise for any extended period. So Bayo was pretty big as a pitcher. But, yeah, I would say as a position player, this is the most anticipated guy since uh, since. What, what's your favorite one? Like, so, so I – and it could be recent. Like, so my thing is all these guys have been called up for dis- different circumstances. Bogarts in 2013 was sort of out of necessity, right? That was in San Francisco. Right, yep. and, and, uh, and it was like, hey, we, can need, we need you for a good team. Um, with Betts, it was you were six games under 500 at the end of June. It was more about you're ready, but we don't think you could maybe turn the season yep, that around. Was in New York. Right, but here's my favorite. Yohan Mankata. I mean, that was a big deal. Yeah, it was, given the, the amount of money that they had paid. And they flat out said, you're our starting third baseman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and he clearly wasn't ready, No, no. Uh, both for the position and, you know, from an offensive standpoint. But, yeah, there was a lot of hype around that because I think when you, you know, when you get a guy from Cuba, there's always kind of that unknown factor, you know, who is this guy? I mean, it's not quite the... Uh, the the unknown factor that when you have guys coming in from Japan because nobody has seen those guys play sure. in person. You've seen some video. And it's kind of the same for, for players from, from Cuba and all they went through to, to get him here and then to turn around, of course, and include him in the deal for sale. Um, but then you had back-to-back years in Seattle, Benintendi. Benintendi's another one, good one. Devers. They were yeah. both in Seattle. I, I, I think... That was probably not by accident. Somebody took out a map and said, what's the farthest place from Fenway Park we could have somebody <laughs> make, make their major league <laughs> debut and away from the throng? And they said, oh, look, Seattle looks like Yeah, the spot. weird thing is that Devers and Benintendi also took their shirts off and sunbathed in the outfield, but no one saw them because they were in Seattle. So there you go. But All right, so we got to take a break. I want to get to the book, The Franchise, A Curated History of the Red Sox. I love, by the way how you, I'm, I'm not just saying this, I love how you organize it because it leads me to some good power ranking talk. Okay, good. Ah, uh, Nothing better than some good power ranking talk. Love it. All right, so this is Sean McAdam of Boston Sports Journal. I'm Rob Bradford. This is the Bradford Show. A lot to get to. Be back right after this. 
Ooh, some easy breezy jazz. This jazz, Sean, you're a bigger music guy than uh, I am. No, this is uh, the Doobie. Well, the, the original is the Doobie Bros. Which I would not classify as jazz. Well, and, and, like and, yacht rock. As an homage to Jonathan Papelbon, this is the Doobie Brothers. Uh, all right, so this is the Bradford Show from live from the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios. I'm here with Sean McAdam, author of the franchise, a curated history of the Boston Red Sox. And Sean, it is now time for my favorite game, which is power ranking. All right, and I love, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. Uh, I love how you organize this book. It's it's not just a history, but it's broken up into some really really good like <laughs> topics uh, in terms of what you can debate. Uh, so you have, for instance, you have history, Fenway Park, Yaki era, Henry era, media, Ned Martin, Peter Gammons, Jerry Remy. Which, by the way, when Joe brought that up on the broadcast the other night, oh man, you should have just said, Joe, you uh, you were number four. We he, could we could only do three. He got, he got he got left on the editing room floor. Well, you I also you most respect. He also brought it up right in the middle of a guy running on the field, which I, I yeah, I, I wanted that guy to have a lot of. I heard Open that. field running to give me more time. That was a great line. I, I can neither confirm nor deny that I was behind <laughs> his motivation to jump onto the field. It's weird. It's had the franchise tattooed on his back. All right. Uh, then you have the rivalry. Yankees dominate uh, 1920 through 1977, 1978, 2003. You have icons. Williams, Yastrzemski, Ortiz, Aces, Clemens, Martinez, Jess Miss, which is a great one, 67, 75, 86. The Golden Age, which, by the way, is all within. We're living in it right yeah, now, I, I Rob. Know. It's, it's basically like Maybe not this April, year. May, June. No. Uh, no I, it's, I, have, I have told people at yeah. signings, uh, I, I have begun my little spiel in bookstores by <laughs> assuring them that there is actually absolutely no 2022 content in this book. So <laughs> Red Sox fans desperately well, run mean, away from this season. It, Fear not, there is no mention that the book was completed well in advance of the start. Of it kind of it's kind of important that they don't do anything important this year. Yeah, so. yeah. It, I, I don't want to make it seem outdated already. So and then uh, transformative figures: Dick O'Connell, Theo Epstein, Francona. So so you get the idea. These are broken up into different categories, which obviously leads to my favorite exercise, um, besides earthing, which is uh, power ranking. Earthing and power ranking is hand in hand. Uh, the first one I want to start is is chapter is part four the icons. Okay, it's one of my favorite things to say. Who is the most impactful player in Boston Red Sox history? So I brought this up before, and so the three guys that you focus on. I'm not saying this is how what you said, but you called them icons. Yep. Uh, Williams, Estremski, Ortiz. So under that guys, under that sort of umbrella, which I just threw out there, which would you say? No question, it's Ortiz. Yep. Which is not. You know, let, let, let's parse our words carefully here. That isn't to say that Ortiz is necessarily the greatest Red Sox player of all time, but you use the qualifier impactful. This guy played on three world championships, uh, neither Williams nor Yastrzemski, each of whom are hugely important in telling the Red Sox story, even played on one. Uh, you know, and that sort of defines Red Sox history from not only Ted's debut in 39, but going back to 1919 all the way up to 2004. Uh, Yaz in particular is, I, I don't want to use the phrase tragic figure, but in many ways he represents that frustration. He, he ushered in modern Red Sox history with the 67 team, but he is associated with so many of those close calls. 
not just 67, but 72, finishing a half game behind a De- Detroit in the strike-shortened season because of the, uh, uh, an inequitable schedule that saw them play one fewer game than the Tigers, 74 when they're ahead in September and end up finishing fourth, 75 when they lose a great World Series to the Cincinnati Reds and Yastrzemski makes the last out, 78, the playoff game with the Yankees. Again, Yastrzemski making the last out. Oh, so for as great as he was, he was also sort of the, the, the face of the futility that the franchise experienced for those almost 20 years from 67, uh, you know, from the mid-60s into uh, the early 80s when he retired in 83. And Williams, of course, through his long storied career in which you could rightfully call him the greatest hitter not just in Red Sox history but in the game's history was only a part of one World Series and wasn't very healthy when that happened so that's that's the separator for Ortiz and with Ortiz too it's not only that they won World Series it's that they literally like flat out don't win the World Series without him right Right, I right. mean that's. Yeah, I mean to go back to 2013, right. 680 or whatever. It was. Yeah, you have you have the entire team hitting 100 and him hitting 600. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Well, and and it, you know I I'd like to frame it this way, Rob, that that Ortiz not only is the most impactful guy and they don't win the three without him. All of that is true, but I think overriding that is that he changed the narrative and the expectations for Red Sox fans. Up until 2004, Red Sox fans were properly conditioned to expect the worst at the biggest time, whether it was, you know, the, the disappointments of 67, 75, 8, 78, 86, all of that. Uh, Red Sox fans thought when they were ahead, they were going to lose. When they were coming from behind, they were not going to be able to do it. <laughs> they were conditioned to expect to lose. Ortiz, over time, didn't happen right away, but starting in 2004, he made people believe, hey, we might actually win this because they had David Ortiz. And, and no greater compliment could be put on Ortiz's career is it, other than to say he changed the mindset and the expectations going from expecting the worst no matter what to reasonably expecting them to win because of the presence of one guy. Well, one person I know that either has already bought your book or will buy multiple copies of your book if he hasn't is Jeff from Watertown. Jeff, what's going on? Hey, Sean, it is so great to hear your voice again. It's so great to hear you on uh, on that WEI again. And uh, nice to be back. Nice to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you. I can't wait. I, I can't wait to get it. And um, I, you know, it's an interesting point that you make because because uh, I was thinking about you know the heyday of the old baseball show. That was all about the first times, you know, we, we talked, you know, we were there in 03 and then 04, uh, you know, and then again in 07. And, you know, it, it, it was a whole different world then. I mean, I used to yep. say that, you know, I, it you know sure the was. Were... four hours of baseball talk, Jeff. <laughs> it was. And, you know, but people were miserable, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, and then all of a sudden they weren't anymore. And now, you know, now, you know, the, the whole culture around here has changed, you know, sports, you know, all four sports. I've been successful. It's just so it's so different. You know, young people around here today just don't have that that died in the wool pessimism that you know <laughs> that existed for so long. So, so that's that's a great thing. I I didn't hear you at the beginning, so I don't know if you talked about this, but I'm just curious about your assessment of the Heim Bloom era and and um, 
Uh, this, if I can remember years ago talking to you in the old baseball show about wanting Billy Bean to come here and show what he could do with some money behind him. Uh, and you, you never did that. But, but what do you think of the, the High and Bloom experiment here? Well, it's obviously a mixed bag so far, Jeff, and uh, with a very disappointing on-field product for 2022, kind of balanced out with a surprisingly successful 2021 and a, and a pretty long postseason run. I, I think um, ultimately that Bloom's legacy is going to be determined this offseason. What happens with Bogart's endeavors and how does he – rebuild on the fly from an underachieving team this year to attempt to put a contender on the field next year. So I, I'm, I'm not dodging the question. I just right. think a lot of the, a lot of the history is going to be made in the next, you know, three or four months, how he handles trying to retain Bogarts, trying to extend Devers. If that fails, what does he get for Devers? Does he try to trade Devers? Who does he replace Bogarts with if Bogarts doesn't stay and what does he do to, as I said, sort of remake that starting rotation on the fly and try to um, try to not only uh, put a contender on the field, but likely save his job, which I think he'll have to do next season. Right. I, I don't know if you remember, but I, I was a big Dave Dombrowski fan before he came here. And the thing I point to this season right now, going into the offseason, reminds me of 97 when Dave Dombrowski – went to the Marlins. They had some good talent in the farm system. They had a lot of money to spend. And in one offseason, he built a World Series championship team. And, you know, and then he had dismantled the year after. But, but I just, you know, I, you know, Bloom is in one of these unique positions. I mean, he's in a great place right now. Any general manager, I think, would, would kill to come in here with, you know, assuming their stocks are going to spend the money, which I think they are, and the farm system as it is right now. I think he's in a great position. I just, I just don't know if he has the 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 vision i know you know I, I know he focuses on next season and the year after and down the road i want to know if he if he understands the value of the season when it's happening yeah i, 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 I like think he hasn't shown that right I, yeah I think jeff thanks a, for the call there, there's an urgency that's going to that that's going to arrive this winter and and jeff makes a good point rob where you know heim has talked about sustainability about the the uh, the yeah, they're delicate for they're, balance. They're, they're all for one, right? The the delicate balancing act of rebuilding the system, uh, preparing to have that pipeline of players continually feed your major league roster, but crucially also have success at the big league level. Use your resources of a big market team and put a contender on the field. He did that a year ago while continuing to improve the system. System is now top ten. 11, depending on your ranking, somewhere in the top third of baseball, and that's positive, but you can't neglect the major league product on the field at the same time. No, because you can't, you can say it's top 10, but we have to see if these guys can play. Because we've, if you know, Sean, we've had plenty of guys ranked in top 10 of, of, you know, top five guys, and they're like, oh, I mean, Jackie Bradley's a good player, right? Right. A good player. But is did he become the superstar? A lot of people thought he was going to yep. be Henry oh. Owens. Henry, you know oh, that oh. he was oh. he, he was heading up the next wave of Blake Swihart. You know, right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, so you're right. There, there's a there's a. I mean, we've seen encouraging things from Bayo yesterday. Certainly, yeah. you look at that and say five or six years at least. But it's got to be. Uh, it, you know, it's it's it obviously is going to require yeah. more than beating the Texas Rangers, uh, who are out of contention in a September game to sustain that. Yeah, I don't think that putting in the bumper stickers, we beat the Rangers in early September. Probably not. No. Um, can you hang? 
Absolutely. All right, awesome. We're going to keep talking about the franchise, curated history of the Boston Red Sox with the author, Sean McAdam, right here. Uh, I do want to ask, uh, we, we had talked about sort of the iconic players and, and sort of will there not be another iconic player? Will the Red Sox actually hold on to some of these guys to become iconic players? And also, you know, you talk about in the, ca- in the book, Transformative Figures, some, some pretty powerful names. Dick O'Connell, a lot of younger people might not know who he is, but certainly people know who Theo Epstein is, who uh, Terry Francona is. So, you know, and can, can Heim Bloom learn anything from this? Because like you said, he's going to have the money, sure. But can he learn? There is definitely things to be learned from these guys that you have in this book. 617-779-7937 if you have any questions for Sean. This is the Bradfoe Show. Be back after this. All right, welcome back to the Bradfoe Show. I'm Rob Bradford, the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios. I'm here with Sean McAdam, author of the franchise. I'm just going to call it best-selling book. Best-selling book. Sure. It is in my house. There you go. It is it's best-selling book. Uh, curated history of the Boston Red Sox. As I said, it's I love it's it's such a good read because it I can't say this enough. Too many books, too many of the, the books about, you know, we look at the history. People, I think, get overwhelmed with the history books, right? Yeah, and well, it's a, it's a franchise that's 125 years yes. old. It's kind of, where do you start? But you managed to do this in a way where it is so digestible and, and leads to the, the type, type of conversations that we've been having. You know, we talked about the iconic players, and I want to sort of morph into, you have transformative figures here, and Dick O'Connell, Theo Epstein, and Terry Francona. Now... I'm going to push Dick O'Connell aside just for a second. Sorry, Dick O'Connell. Uh, but people obviously, I think even the youngest generation here have some familiarity with Theo Epstein and Terry Francona. The question I have for you, Sean, is what, are, what are, is the, a huge lesson that can be learned from each about performing this job in Boston? Maybe there's multiple lessons, but I think it, like, they had hits and misses, obviously. Sure. They had flaws, but at the same time, each of them, there's a reason why they're in part eight transformative figures of your book is because they found the secret sauce that worked at a very important time in a very difficult market. So what are some of the things each of those guys brought? Yeah, well, with Theo, I think he understood that, uh, you know, the ebb and flow of a team and, and Heim Bloom is finding this out now that going to within two games of a World Series in October does not guarantee you success the following year. We've seen the ups and downs that some franchises have made. So Theo understood the balance of a number of things. First of all, he was smart enough uh, at the beginning of the analytics revolution to incorporate the data, but also have Bill LaJoy, you know, kind of a crusty... Right, I remember, and I remember Theo's line about Bill LaJoy, the late Bill LaJoy, who obviously had a great run as a GM of the Tigers. Right, eighty four that eighty four eighty four Tigers together. And and I remember, I always remember what I what he said about him, and and I sort of try to use this when talking about people that you want either working with you or for you or anytime, which is he had a strong desire to kick ass. Like that's what he said about him. Yep. All right, there you go. And, 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 you know, more to the point, he was a set of, uh, he was kind of the traditional scout whose evaluation skills 
Theo valued and trusted. So on one hand, you had Carmine, and on the other hand, you had Bill LaJoy, and Theo was able to synthesize both of those so that at the beginning of this analytics revolution and Moneyball and all of that stuff, he had the the uh, you know the the newest data and projections, and you also had a traditional grizzled baseball guy who could go out and say, "Yeah, this guy can play, and that guy can't." And Theo trusted that evaluation set of skills. So th- that's one thing Theo did. He also understood that you had to have that pipeline constantly coming. You look at how different the 04 team was mm-hmm. that, let's face it, a lot of that roster was inherited from the Dan Duquette era. It, uh, you know, Theo, for all his uh, success, did not bring them Pedro Martinez. He did not bring them Manny Ramirez. He did not bring them Derek Lowe or Jason Baratek or any of those. He did add guys who were critically important to 04, but then look at how different that team is in 07 where it's starting to be the thing that Theo valued most, the you know the, the scouting and development machine that was his ultimate dream, and to see Pedroia and Papelbon and Lester and, uh, and Ellsbury mm-hmm. start to make their mark in 07. And I think Theo also understood that each team had its own – I mean, and, and Francona talked about this too. Each team had an identity. So in 04 – it was uh, the idiots, the cowboy up, the, the, the we're not going to let Boston overwhelm us, led by Kevin Millar. Mm-hmm. And three years later, it was, no, we're, now we're, we've been here long enough that we're developing guys we drafted, and now they're getting to the big leagues, and now they're going to contribute. And we know that Terry Francona has said that 08 team may have been the most talented yeah. one. He had, even though they stopped short of reaching the World Series, got about as close as you could against David Price in Game 7 of the ALCS, but didn't get over that hump. And then you start looking at the teams that followed, the championship teams. The 2013 team is is kind of bits and pieces of guys like Gomes and Victorino and people that were brought in on short-term deals to buy time for the next wave that Charrington had been nurturing. And then 2018 is a wagon that steamrolls everybody from April all the way through the end of October. So all four of those championship teams have different identities, and I think Theo recognized even though he was only the, you know he was only here for two of those. The first two, he understood that this was constantly evolving and you can't, be fat and happy even if you have won two World Series. Now, and as you're talking, it's sort of interesting because with all those championship teams, you have the foundation. And, and you know, whether it's Sher- what Sherrington did in 2013, what Theo did in 2007 and in 04 is, yeah, they found the complementary guys, right? But you need the foundation guys. Yep. And that's what makes this task so daunting for Heimblom, right? Because... The foundation guys, or the guys who were supposed to be the foundation guys, they're either up with their contracts or they're pretty close to it. Right. And so you got to go out and find the right guys. And in and, and Bloom, I think, tried to do that to an extent with Trevor Story. But that's a big part of this, right? Yeah. Of, I, 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 of, like Theo, Kurt Schilling, foundation guy, right? He went out and got him. He saw that. 
Um, uh, who else am I thinking of? For I mean, for a shorter period of time, Keith Folk, obviously. Oh, Keith for, Folk, yeah, absolutely. Know, he, I mean, he was never the same after October of, tw- of 2004 because of what he did in 2004. I mean, he got abused that month to, to win them the World Series and was never the same after, but he was looked upon as okay, we need the guy who's going to be able to come into Yankee Stadium in the ninth inning with a one-run lead and slam the door, and we need the guy to do it repeatedly in the month of October against the best teams in the game, and he did it, but at a cost. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. Sean McAdam, author of the franchise, a curated history of the Boston Red Sox. We're going to talk a little bit more about this subject because we haven't got – I asked you about Theo and Tito – and I do think that there's a correlation between Tito and Alex Cora about lessons to be learned. And I obviously Alex Cora was there, and he's learned some a lot of lessons from Terry Francona. But as you said before, not every team is the same. Certainly generations are different. You can't treat everybody the exact same way, which is what makes Tito Francona's run currently so impressive because he has evolved while keeping his foundation. But, you know, we're going to talk all about that. But first, we got a trend. The Greg Hill Show, weekdays 6 to 10. Now, here's what's trending on WEEI. Trending now at WEI and WEI.com. The Red Sox coming away with another win yesterday, 5-3 to three over the Rangers. Brian Bayo notching his first big league victory, pitching through six innings and striking out five. The Red Sox have a chance to sweep the Rangers this afternoon with first pitch set for 1.35 p.m. And you can, of course, catch the pregame show right here with Rob Bradford on the Shaw's and Star Market, a Red Sox network. Celtics' recent acquisition, Danilo Gallinari, has reportedly tore his ACL after the initial belief was that he only tore his meniscus, his recovery time. Timetable has now been set for anywhere from 6 to 12 months. And the New England Revolution gets set for their match with New York City FC tonight, with kickoff being set for 8 p.m. The Revs are coming off a draw to Chicago Fire FC, while New York City FC is coming off a 2-1 loss to D.C. United. And I want to remind you to make sure to tune in to WEEI this Red Sox season as they broadcast live from our Ford Clubhouse Fenway studio before Red Sox weekend home games. That's brought to you by your New England Ford dealers and Ford trucks, official truck, of the Red Sox Network. I'm Ethan Erzadulu, and that's what's trending here at WEI and WEI.com. All right, welcome back to the Bradford Show from the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios. I'm Rob Bradford, along with Sean McAdam. Now, this is jazz. This is jazz. Thank you, Ethan. Excellent job. Everyone knows I love a good uh, jazz flute in in a Sunday morning, much like Ron Burgundy. Uh, so we've been talking a lot with Sean McAdam, who's the author of the franchise, a curated history of the Boston Red Sox, which sort of morphed into the here and the now. But I just thought of this, Sean, you know, I feel like this is very important, a very important book for people to get. So anybody who tweets proof that they have ordered your book and, and attaches the Bradfoe Show Twitter account, we will take one of those people and give them a baseball is a boring t-shirt. Right, Coop? There you go. Coop's a short. All right? So prove that you bought the book. Tweet at the Brad Show Twitter account. Then you're in the mix for a, a, Brad, a baseball is a boring t-shirt, which, by the way, is uh, on Nesson right now. Is that uh, correct? Yes, on Nesson. It's being worn all over the place. Because you know what, Sean? Baseball isn't boring. I have heard that, Rob. On the rocket, off am, the record. Conference. I am co-signing that. Uh, sometimes, yes. Yeah. So but it is, it is uh, you know, the Timmy Trumpets thing. Like, this is, 
Yay for baseball. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, you know, it's fun. Let, it should be. I, look, if Buck Showalter is on board with it, you know, <laughs> that, that says something. And I'm, I'm being kind of facetious, but, um, you know, he's kind of looked upon as a very stodgy, traditional guy. He's got, you know, it's 107 in, in, in Baltimore when he was managing and he had the jacket zipped up all the way. Uh, you know, he was the one that took great offense to Ortiz smashing the phone when he was yeah. there. I mean, he, he's not exactly, um, you know, uh, a cutting edge in that sense. But the fact that uh, actually I think Buck's changed a little bit for the good. And I think his embrace of the whole uh, Edwin Diaz and mm-hmm. the narco walk uh, entrance music. And I, I, I shudder to think 10 years ago what Buck Showalter would have done had the Orioles brought a trumpet player onto the field to play a song for Armando Benitez or whoever would the closer was of the Orioles. And, and if it was, time. if it was David Ortiz, forget about it. Yeah. But, but it's a good segue as we head into the Red Sox pregame show. It's a good segue into what we were talking about in your book. You talk, you, you take a deep dive into Theo Epstein and who we just talked about, but also Terry Francona and, this is a guy, and I asked you before, what can we learn about something, that, how he managed in Boston, or what Alex Cora can learn. But a big part of this, Sean, is what you touched on with Theo and what you just touched on with Buck, which is this: you have to evolve. Yep. Like You have to be able to evolve. You have to understand that this player isn't like that player. This market isn't like that market. And you're, you know Terry Francona as good as anybody in the game. And I would imagine you could see that in him, and this is what makes him so good, right? Exactly. And, 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 you know, it seems like such a simple directive or a simple philosophy, but Francona realized you had to let the players be themselves, express themselves, and that that environment would get the best performance out of him. And it didn't, you know, while there were, I, I think Tito is one of those guys in the club, you know, I only have two rules, show up on time and play hard. And I think most managers kind of subscribe to that. And again, it sounds overly sim- simplistic. Well, there's got to be more to it than that. But when that's your guiding philosophy and when you have such disparate personalities like Pedro and Ortiz and Manny and Millar and Damon and all those guys in 04 – if you start trying to micromanage me, hey, you know, you don't have your, your jersey or your uniform top on while you're taking BP, you know, go back in there. That's not how we do things. He wasn't going to concern himself with the small stuff. It was about being on time, playing hard, and, and you know, and thinking of the team. And he got all of those guys as different and as individual as they may have been pulling on the same rope and it ended up with a what do you see what do you see um and alex core is, is his own guy alex yep. core is more of a i'm going out in the clubhouse uh chopping it up with the players and, and really like we go back to you know john farrell had his strengths and but then it, it came a point in time where it felt like okay you needed that maybe that manager who was going to get out in the clubhouse a little bit more so core is a little bit different in both than both those guys but what is the thing that you see in cora that you say, oh, you know what, that's from Terry Francona. Well, I think he has that overriding, you know, he, he's got a rookie first baseman today 
making his major league debut, sunning himself in right field three hours before game time, and Alex is in the pregame media session joking about it in a, in a good way, not making fun of him, not saying, like, what's up with this kid? He just <laughs> got here. He realizes that there are, you know, guys are have their own routines. They have their own individual quirks or habits or whatever it is that has made them successful. We know that, that Casas did this a lot in the minor leagues. Seemed to work for him. Yep. Just because he's on the big stage here in the major league environment does not mean we're going to wag a finger at him when he tries to do that here. So, again, it's that, that overriding philosophy of letting guys express themselves, be themselves, be who they are, but at one o, you know, at, at 110 or 710, be ready and remember what the goal is here. And it's not about, you know, having your own brand or do it, it, it's about pulling together with the other now 27 guys to try to win that day. All right, Sean, Sean McAdam, last thing uh, from your book, The Franchise is what is the thing when you're doing this project that you're like, ooh, hmm, that, that sort of hit home a little bit more than I thought, or I didn't, not, I, maybe I didn't realize it was like that. I mean, there's always, this is an exhaustive process, pro, and, and, and to anybody who does a book, like it's, it's such an accomplishment, and, and to, so to take, and I heard you on the broadcast about how, you, you know, this is an exhausting thing, right? And your yeah. only good day is when you get the box of books, right. right? But what is the thing that you like when you're doing it, you say, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it, I, I've been asked that a lot, Rob, at some signs oh, and things. No, 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 don't, don't, <laughs> don't sell yourself short. You're, you're asking a good question. Um, but it also means I'm prepared for the answer yeah. because it's come up before. And the, the short answer is, the impact Dick O'Connell had on this franchise, which I don't. That's why I didn't want to talk about him. I knew he was coming (laughs) up. You you held that to the side as a brilliant interviewer would do. Yes. Um, No, the the impact that Dick O'Connell had on this franchise uh, for a period of, you know, of 15 years or so. And when we think of, you know, the Red Sox franchise turning from black and white to color in 1967 and, that season, the impossible dream season, saving the franchise, Tom Yaki was unsure whether staying in Fenway Park, whether staying in an urban environment was sustainable. Uh, you know, it was getting more expensive. You had the, the suburbs were becoming more the destination point. He thought about moving out to the suburbs. But 67 revitalized the franchise. It got people into baseball again instead of having – 450,000 people a year, as they did often in the mid-60s. They were now drawing over a million. People watched the games on TV. They listened on radio. And that turned the franchise around. And and O'Connell's uh, big contributions were twofold. One, he pulled the franchise kicking and screaming into the 20th century because we know that the Red Sox were the last team to integrate in 1959, that they had too many people in management, in the manager's office, who had racist tendencies, who were only interested in keeping the old boy network alive. And Dick O'Connell said, essentially, screw that. We're going to get the best players we can, whether they be Latino or African-American. Look at that 67 team with Reggie Smith, George Scott, Joe Foy, uh, Jose Tartable, John Wyatt, Elston Howard. 
that would have been unthinkable five, six years earlier. But O'Connell changed the thinking where he was going to start looking at all avenues of talent to bring players into the pipeline and then look at the incredible number of players who came up on his watch from Tony Canigliaro to Rico Petroselli to Reggie Smith to Jim Lomborg into the 70s and Carlton Fisk and Fred Lynn and Jim Rice and Rick Burleson. He had two pennant winners in 67 and 75. He came as close as you could in 72, finishing a half game out. And although he was fired at the end of 77, that team in 78 on the field was his, just as in many respects Dan Duquette could claim to have uh, some ownership of what happened in 2003 and 2004. So he developed, he instituted that scouting and development machine that Theo Epstein dreamed of building decades later. All right, great stuff. Sean, thanks for, so much for coming by. Everybody, it, everybody by the franchise of Curated History, the Boston Red Sox. I want to thank everybody uh, for making this happen. Joe Weil, Ethan. Will Fleming, who's going to be coming. I'm just thanking Will Fleming because he's going to be on the pregame show. But most importantly, Sean McAdam, once again, the franchise of curated history of the Boston Red Sox. Catch this interview on the Bradford Show podcast page. I'm Rod Bradford. I'm also going to be doing the pregame. You're going to want to stick around. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you coming up next. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.